in this episode, we pretty much sit down with the smartest man in the room. Hey, what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? Welcome to the Sea and Land Fitness Podcast. I'm Michael Sano, the host. Today, we have an amazing, amazing guest. But before we get to that, this episode is brought to you by Sea and Land Fitness. So head on over to www.sandlfit, sandlfit.com and pick up some gear and merchandise. Okay. So, as all of you know, I'm a recent graduate, August 11th, of the University of Florida's master's program in applied uh, physiology and kinesiology. Let's make sure I get that at least right. Um, and one of, the, one of the professors, one of the amazing individuals that got me through this um, was Dr. Max Adolphs. He is a professor and lecturer in applied physiology and advanced slash clinical physiology from the Department of Applied Physiology and Kinesiology, which resides within the College of Health and Human Performance at the University of Florida. Dr. Adolphs, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Oh, man. So tell us. So I went through your CV and I stopped reading after about 45 minutes because it is so enormous. For those of you who don't know what a CV is, it is sort of like an academic resume. You have taught at so many different places. Can you give us a little bit of your background and your journey into how you got to where you are today? Sure. Um, I, well, I grew up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, um, and was at, you know, I played sports, I, hockey mostly, actually. And, uh, I took a real interest in, in sports and weightlifting as well. Um, hockey kind of got me into weightlifting and then I got really serious about weightlifting and, um, that always, you know, because of my interests related to to sports and weightlifting. I was always interested in the human body. Um, and then when I went to college, I, you know, the human physiology courses I took really, really fascinated me. And that then resulted in me pursuing um, a, a degree in basically what was the equivalent of exercise physiology. Um, because again, it was like learning about the human physiology, which I loved and found amazing, but also then being able to relate it to my interest in, in performance and sports. And after that, after I finished my degree, I, I went on and did a master's. Um, I, I did all this in the Upper Peninsula, by the way. Um, okay. And I, um, when I started my master's degree, that's the first time that I um, really taught a class, like at least a lab class, a lab section. Um, so when I was doing my master's, I was teaching basically the lab section of what would be the equivalent of like anatomy. Wow. And um, I was really, I just loved teaching the material and teaching the material actually allowed me to learn it even better and even more. So I just became kind of uh, entrenched in that loop of teaching the material, learning the material, and then learning the material more from teaching the material. And I was so, 
I enjoyed it so much that then I continued to pursue a PhD after I finished my master's degree. Between my master's and my PhD, I taught like at a community college in in Green Bay, Wisconsin for a while, um, just to get more experience teaching like anatomy and physiology. Um, but then I did my PhD after about a, uh, you know, after a short period of time at the at Indiana University in Indianapolis while I was simultaneously working at a small liberal arts college there, teaching anatomy and physiology courses to both undergraduate students and then also to physician assistant students. Um, and then I finished my PhD while I was doing that and kept doing that for a few more years. Um, and then finally, I came to the University of Florida where I've continued to do really kind of the same thing, which is basically more strictly teach physiology courses uh, to undergraduate masters and, and, and PhD students. And there's quite a, a lot of different physiology courses that I have taught in that oh period gosh, of time, yeah. which has been about three years now. So now I just that was longer than you were looking for, but no, that's okay. I just like when I looked away from the camera, I was looking at your CV, and there's a block chart, like an Excel spreadsheet, on your CV, and there are 27 different courses just in this block on numerous different oh, yeah. subjects, and I was like, oh my gosh, this guy, holy cow! So. The reason why I say you're the smartest man in the room. So when I was at undergrad, I did, um, originally I was doing a double major, but I wound up doing one of the majors as a minor. But one of the uh, majors that I was in, um, I would go and I would ask questions of the faculty and they would say, oh, that's a Wasserman question. So that would mean that, that that's at a level that, you know, you got to go ask Dr. Wasserman about that. So <laughs> when I got to University of Florida, I would ask Dr. Harrison, who's the strength and conditioning guy, or or um, Dr. Beatty, who is the sports psychology guy, you know, because these, these fields intermingle, mesh sometimes, and they would say, oh, that's an Adolf's question. You got to ask him that. <laughs> So you, I mean, I, I'm right now working on getting my CSCS. Um, I go on the 26th, um, for my exam. I'm a little nervous, but uh, the material, I know the material, um, anatomy physiology wise because of you. So, I mean, you're tremendous. So speaking of I'm physiology, what is exercise physiology? Um, exercise physiology itself is, I think, quite easy to define. It's just, well, first of all, what is physiology, mm -hmm. uh, which is the study of the function of the human body. You study how neurons, muscle fibers, et cetera, function. Um, and then with exercise physiology, you know, you're studying how those cells and systems function during exercise. So, I mean, in general physiology, you might learn you know, simply how muscle fibers contract um, on, a, on, a, on maybe an intermediate level. Um, but then you would focus in something like exercise physiology much heavily, much more heavily on 
the different types of contractions that those muscle fibers produce in different circumstances during exercise and how those would influence things like fatigue and adaptations um, specifically related to exercise. So you would kind of take that same idea and apply it to all the different systems in the human body. Well, your courses also relied heavily on neuromuscular uh, interaction and yeah. action potentials and the feeding of the chemistry set that is our human body. Um, if you don't eat this, then you won't have the calcium to go into the sarcoplasm, uh, sarcoplasmic reticulum. Ooh, pat myself on the back. I learned a lot from you. Um, but all of those things, you start to see these relationships and these interactions between these different disciplines. Absolutely. No, one of the most amazing things about human physiology, when you really learn it, is how everything is, is interconnected. And if you can connect to those things, it's really a pretty beautiful puzzle to put together. So. That's awesome. Now, how we, we just touched on this, actually. So how can understanding human physiology help the average person? Um, or actually, yeah, we'll start with the average person. How can it help them live a more uh, healthy life? Um, how could understanding exercise or general physiology, general, general physiology, not just a healthier life, but have, I'm assuming they would have a better relationship with their caregiver because they'd be able to explain things and have a more yeah. understanding, a more buy-in into their health. I, I don't think that you have to look very far, you know, at the statistics on, the number of people in this country and around the world, especially in developed countries that are many of them, at least that are obese. Um, and I mean, the number of health problems uh, are, you know, the number one killer in the United States is cardiovascular disease, um, which I, is, is terrible. Um, and most of that is, is going to be related to a combination of eating a poor diet and a lack of, of exercise, which then results in, um, you know, typically something like visceral obesity um, that then results in, in heart disease. And ultimately, if you don't stop it or, or reverse it down the line, death. So um, knowing about human physiology uh, some basics about it. I think for most people, maybe not everybody, but would be tremendously helpful in, in aiding them in making smarter decisions um, about their life. Um, I mean, if you, if it's, if it's just about improving lifestyle, I think, you know, and living a healthier life, if you understand on a basic level that, well, fat cells are actually incredibly metabolically active especially visceral adipocytes, fat cells. Um, and you have a basic idea of like what those fat cells, you know, the hormones and different molecules, chemical messengers that they secrete and produce that go into the system, you know, your cardiovascular system and the effects that those can have on so many different cells in the body. Um, I think an appreciation of that and an understanding of that, I think would be, would be helpful for somebody to um, 
maybe make better maybe long, make some yeah maybe make some meaningful changes in their life I, I think too many people think for example of of adipocytes fat cells as just being this place where triglycerides are stored right where fat is stored and that's not what they are at all i mean we used to think that a really long time ago but it's become evident that you know very evident that that fat cells are probably the most metabolically one of the most metabolically active tissues in in the human body i mean it's a huge part of the endocrine system and if you can understand what the implications are for being overweight i i just think that it, it would be helpful then in you making decisions about exercising and eating and i mean to that end um Physiology, exercise physiology, and it involves a little bit of understanding nutrition as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not a nutrition class, but th- there's a good amount of, of understanding nutrition and metabolism that's involved in, in physiology as well. And when people learn uh, about nutrition, I think it's so incredibly uh, mind-opening when you really learn about you know, basic nutrition and the impact that those nutrients have inside of the human body, learning the basic difference between saturated and unsaturated fat, learning, you know, the different types of carbohydrates, also known as sugars, um, learning about protein and the impact that, that those have on really all the cells in your body that rely upon them. Um, it allows people, of course, to make smarter decisions if they're more familiar with what those nutrients are and how to find them and, and, and what to look for. Um, well, I think so, one of the things, and I'm sorry, I'm I'm not trying to interrupt okay, you. Please, I think one me. of the uh, <laughs> I think one of the interesting things is we talk about a lot of things in strength and conditioning, like nutrient timing. Um, I'm I'm just sticking with the subject of of nutrition, but you know, understanding why, not just why nutrient timing is important, but understanding what the process that occurs from the moment it passes your lips, from the moment it goes down your esophagus, from the moment it goes into your small intestine, and how different. So uh, 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 an example is, um, you know, uh, aerobic athletes, endurance athletes, they, they're instructed, you know, I think the, the instruction now is that they take a number of different um, uh, sugars, enough for, uh, number of glucose, fructose, um, sucrose, uh, uh, in order to allow the different um, intake, uptake uh, mechanisms to work. So you're not, so one's not getting clogged. And if you have that understanding that, oh, it's almost like having three different tanks in your car, one for regular, one for medium, one for high test. And um, being able to pull from all of them because you're overwhelming the engine with just one kind. That's a horrible analogy, but it's the only one I could come up with. But I mean, <laughs> no, I don't think so. Understanding no. those types of mechanisms help you make better choices. I think beyond that, though, 
understanding the mechanisms would allow you more importantly to critically analyze what you're being told mm -hmm. um, because there's certainly controversy around you know like the consumption of fructose versus glucose because ultimately really all the monosaccharides are converted to to, to glucose within the liver so you know you can certainly have a you know a, a debate Mm -hmm. about the value of consuming fructose versus glucose and the impact that that has on glycogen and a variety of other things. Um, but that's an impossible debate or thought to have if you don't understand the basics of physiology. And at that point, you're just being told something and it's easy to believe it, um, which happens way too much. And I was trying to answer that previous question without thinking more specifically about performance, mm -hmm. because I think what you're saying leads me more so into the. Well, let's the move into that. Let's move into performance. That's okay. That's fine. Yeah, um, I just think that when you think of performance, I mean, less so thinking about just living a healthier lifestyle, which of course I think if you understand, you know, some basic nutrition and how nutrition influences cells and, and how obesity influences, you know, influences cardiovascular health and, and everything else. Um, I think that, of course, informs you and allows you to, to hopefully make better decisions and, and, and critically analyze hopefully. the things that you're being told. But when it comes to performance, I think it's, of course, equally or even more important um, because when you think about performance, I, I just think... <laughs> The number of people that are just told, you know, what to do from their strength and conditioning coach or their high school football coach or whatever it is. And, and, and oftentimes that person is is quite uneducated. Um, it's easy to just believe all of those things that you're being told and to do them when, in fact, they certainly could be actually having a negative impact. Well, I think an example you. could be your coach has a degree in education and teaches um world civ and he's giving you nutritional advice on right. you know what i mean um, no absolutely that's what i mean that's like probably 75 percent of of what's going on and with, he's giving you the advice that sports. his coach from 20 years gave uh, ago gave him <laughs> right 1985 yeah it's <laughs> yeah. like uh, <laughs> uh it all it, it i think that the, it just leads into such a deeper discussion which is there's so much information that is just wrong that exists within uh, just the sports performance and, and sports world. Um, it's a lot of the information is just, a lot of it's just debunked information from like the 1940s. Uh, wow. And it's still, and it's still pervasive um, throughout sports and throughout training. And I just, to answer your question more meaningfully about um, the benefit of actually knowing some basics of human physiology, it allows you to really think through some of those things, you know, that you're being told to do. And like, should I be doing them really this way? Is there a different way that I could do them? Um, might I respond differently just because of, you know, maybe who I am um, to certain types of types of training regimens? Um, I think understanding you know, where hypertrophy, the, the, at least the theoretical idea of where muscle hypertrophy comes from, would certainly serve a benefit to a lot of people. Understanding uh, where uh, strength comes from, 
because strength and hypertrophy aren't necessarily the same thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, what's the, what is the actual physiological explanation of increased strength? And I don't think anybody has a perfect answer to that, but we can be certain, you know, it's not physiologically, it doesn't physiologically have to be related to improvements in hypertrophy. Um, so to understand the difference between those two and where they come from and how different training regimens may influence hypertrophy versus strength, I just think it allows somebody to really think about what they're being told to do. And if it makes any sense based upon, you know, what they've learned and the literature that's available to them to read, um, you know, studies that have been done, because hopefully an education would teach you how to, to look at published research and then be able to really think about, is this, is this doing what I'm being told that it's supposed to do? And maybe how could I do it differently? Um, and I mean, I think the same thing goes for like aerobic and anaerobic adaptations. You know, like if, you, if you're an endurance athlete, mm -hmm. uh, clearly you're looking to maximize um, the aerobic system within muscle cells. Uh, especially slower and more intermediate twitch muscle fibers. Uh, and how can you do that? I mean, that's, I mean, understanding something like metabolism is one of the most complicated concepts, I think, in all of human physiology. And no one knows a lot of these things for sure, exactly how things happen. It is so difficult um, to learn. But once yeah. you got it, you got it. It is true. I mean, yeah, but even then, I mean, there's so much controversy around metabolism to this day, and that's not going to change anytime soon. There's mm -hmm. just so many things that we don't know. And understanding basic metabolism, meaning how cells break down macronutrients <clears throat> to make ATP, um, at least if we're talking about energy metabolism, mm -hmm. uh, if you understand the basics of that, and you understand the different muscle fiber types and how those muscle fiber types, you know, how their metabolisms are, are, are different from each other, at least in the way that they use different energy systems mm -hmm. um, to different degrees, I should say. Uh, it would allow you to, to, to think through how should I train based upon this knowledge to get the maximal benefit to uh, my, you know, sort of aerobic training that I'm doing. And same thing with anaerobic, you know, like if you're doing, if you're a sprinter or any type of, you know, kind of agility, high intensity athlete, um, knowing the difference between the muscle fiber types and the way that they, you know, consume macronutrients to make ATP and the way that they adapt under different circumstances, it, again, it allows you to analyze what's happening to my body right now based upon the type of training that I'm doing? Is it working? And what maybe should I do differently? And if you don't have that background, it's just impossible, I think, to make much sense of what you're doing. And you're just going to do what you're told um, rather than having the ability to, to really think about what it is that you're doing and um, potentially do it in a better way. So, I, I think yeah, I, one of the interesting things about it is that so so to, so to put it as simply as possible, the the purpose of the human body, and I was having this conversation with my wife, and when I told my wife this, she went, "Oh my gosh, I never thought about it that way, and that's so depressing." And I was like, "Wait a minute, no, I said, the purpose of the human body is nothing more 
than to propel the brain through space and to either experience or serve it, meaning to, you know, give it nutrients, forage, whatever. And that's it. That's, I mean, as simple, if you wanted to get down to the nuts and bolts and the simplicity of it, that's all it is. And sport serves, uh, maybe serves the experiential, but doesn't serve the other. So we're going, this is so horrible. We're going against nature by playing sports, but I love it. There's nothing wrong with that. Don't worry. But you start to have this, once you have this understanding of that purpose, you start to look at how do these things occur? So one of the things I remember from years ago, um, probably when I was in the Navy or something, um, Velcro. So we all know what Velcro is. And do you know where Velcro comes from? I do not. Okay, so it's so this guy was standing in a field and thistles were attaching themselves to his clothing. And he went and looked at it under a microscope and there are these hooks and loops and they it's nature's way of connecting one thing to another in order to propagate in order to spread seeds over a larger distance and i've always thought you know with with you have you ever had velcro that you're you get it together and you're like oh my god this is not coming apart and you're like just trying <laughs> to yank it um <laughs> And it's the strongest Velcro you've ever had. And I've always... Yesterday, actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, and... I have these blocks in my car that are Velcro to the to the, to the the carpet or whatever it is in the back. And, yeah, it's it's like trying to remove cement. But oh, anyway. my gosh. Yeah. No, that's okay. So, immediately, when we were talking about myosin and actin, I went, Velcro. Holy cow. Not only does it have that type of hook and loop quality i mean of course it's it's not it's similar in function not in form but the fact that it does that but then it self-releases chemically self-releases is just phenomenal to me that this happens that this occurs mm -hmm. and that this developed and that this myosinactin reaction which which constricts our which allows for the constriction of our muscles exists in your pets exists in the fish exists is it does it exist in plants like plants that contract or is it something similar i don't know the answer to that oh no um, I, we're going on a wikipedia rabbit hole right there right um <laughs> i think so but it's phenomenal I, um and having I, Oh, yeah. go on, go on. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, I'd imagine that in plants, there is something that is structurally similar to something like actin, uh, but I, I don't know for sure. I mean, it's just, it's phenomenal. And when you start to explore these things and you start to explore how pretty much amazing they are, and then you go on YouTube and then you go on Instagram or TikTok <laughs> You want to yeah. just, you want to smash your head against the wall because you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that 16 year old kid is doing that. That's the worst thing. Who told them this? 
Well, probably somebody else on TikTok yes, and Instagram. Absolutely. Do that. Um, which, it, unfortunately, like I was saying, I think this is where, well, I mean, you bring up a great point because I think that's actually where probably 90% of people actually get their information from. If it's not coming from their high school coach, it's coming from some person on TikTok that's trying to, you know, make money doing whatever. I, I, I don't know. Um, I, there's just so much, so much terrible information that I, I don't, I don't have TikTok and Instagram because I'd lose my mind. If I did. Uh, <laughs> but I see enough of it um, where I, I mean, it just reaffirms the fact that I would not want any of that stuff because I, it's just terrible so much of it. I mean, there's some good things on there as mm -hmm. well. There, there is, but I think to, for every good thing and accurate source of information, there's probably a hundred, uh, <laughs> non-accurate and worthless uh, probably well, pieces of information. What are well. some of those? What are some of those that you're seeing right now? Give like maybe three or four. Oh, you mean about like performance or something? The performance, <laughs> physiology, the effects of something, purported effects of something. Sure. I mean, I, just like, I mean, trying to sell supplements, for example. Um, I mean, that's been going on forever. But the ability to market those things with Instagram and, and things like uh, TikTok and whatnot, I mean, it's just, it, it's so much, so much more broad, uh, your ability to reach people compared to what it was, you know, in the early 2000s when you had to go to the GNC or whatever it was <laughs> to, to, to look at Hey, what can I, I help mean, you with? What can I help you with? <laughs> no, exactly. And um, I, I just think that I, I don't know how, I mean, I think I have an idea of how it works is you find people who have a big following, a big fitness following. Mm -hmm. And if you're a company that has a lot of money, what do you do? You tell them, well, we'll pay you to advertise our supplements. And I would say most of the time, I, I, from what I see, these people don't really know much about human physiology. They don't know much about real physiology as it relates to strength training. And then they're just selling a supplement based upon probably information that they're getting from the supplement company, um, which has a real desire to, to make a lot of money. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the you know, supplement companies, they fund studies uh, and they only want positive results from those studies. And then they take the statistics from those studies um, and they amplify the statistics. Again, I don't think anything that they're doing is by any means illegal, but they're mm -hmm. taking, you know, snapshots of different portions of the study to make the supplement. And why not if you're trying to make enormous amounts of money, but to make that supplement look as as unbelievably effective as possible. I mean, when I was growing up, um, the, the advertisements like in the GNC, in GNC and in in vitamin shop or whatever it was for certain supplements, they were just so outrageous. You know, increase your strength by 375% over the course of whatever period of time based upon this study, which in the statistics had actually been, you know, manipulated, not manipulated, but done in a way to make it look like this one small variable had done this. And then they extrapolate that and say that that's 375% of, of something of, you know, who knows what variable they used, but um, that's, that's the kind of information that, that you're getting. 
And to somebody that's uneducated about physiology and about literature, you know, as it relates to you know, what I mean by that is studies, um, they're just going to look at that and they're going to see this supplement that they don't know anything about um, that's being advertised by somebody who has, who's, I guess, largely influential. And they're going to think that this person that's a big, you know, has a, is, is again, influential is telling them that if they take this supplement, they're going to improve their bench press or, or, or potentially put on 20 pounds of muscle. Of course, they're going to take it. And, um, and I think on top of with, that, they also don't know what the inherent metabolic effects, what the uh, the its effects on protein synthesis. Is it an interrupt? Is it something that stops a uh, a, a, a chemical process within the body? Does it have a sure, neurological or, effect? Or is it nothing? Yes. You know, oftentimes it's just like creatine or something. Um, and really, if you look at the package, it's being sold. Who knows what fancy name they give it? But really, it's just creatine, which has been around forever. Um, and again, you're buying something that's largely innocuous. It's not going to hurt you, uh, but it's certainly not going to provide you these massive benefits. And with fancy marketing and taking advantage of an influencer who's maybe not all that educated on physiology and, and training and wants to make money, it's very easy then to sell that to people and, and, and make a lot of money when in reality, they're not going to benefit that much from it. And again, you can buy creatine for, you know, like it's the same so creatine. It's so cheap. And you could be paying 70 or $80 a month to get something that you could buy for $3. But the other um, thing about that, and I'm glad you brought up creatine because creatine has a, a threshold limit, meaning you can only use the the cell itself can only process so much creatine in in a certain span of time there you right. can you and can also, buffer it yeah. you can buffer it and increase the the creatine within the cell you know it's phosphorylating the adp in back into atp but there's a limit on how much you can do there's only so many rpms that it will go to <laughs> Yeah, I think, too, also, there's plenty of evidence that if somebody eats a very high-protein diet already, They're the notion it. that yeah. taking a lot of creatine is going to be able to benefit them is, is, is pretty poor. So, I mean, again, I'm not saying that's not going to serve any benefit, but, you know, regardless of whatever the case might be, creatine is by no means any sort of magic bullet. Um, you know, the, most of the research that's been done on it, and there's an extensive amount of research that's been done on creatine, um, well, you know, also, a lot of also, people don't understand yeah. that creatine is only good for um, for the phosphagen system. It's only good for – it's not going to help you as an endurance runner. There are studies that when you act – when, when <coughs> type 2 muscle becomes more activated that it does dip into creatine. But like you said, if you've already got – if you're on a high protein diet, you're not, it's not advantageous for anything other than that quick 30 seconds. Well, right. And I mean, <coughs> you know, if you look at sprinting studies that have been done with creatine, maybe you could improve a sprint by a, you know, tenth of a second or something. Or with weight training, maybe you, over the course of a couple months, you may be able to put on an extra half a pound of muscle or something like this. It, it's, 
it, none of it is significant and none of it is anywhere near the way that it is still advertised to this day. And yet again, if you know some basic physiology onto the whole pathway that taking creatine supplements targets, mm -hmm. um, when I was younger, it was like people talked about creatine like it was a steroid. Oh my like, gosh, it was, yeah. It's so ridiculous. Like it's, 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 it's nothing near, it's natural. I mean, you can just, can, Use creatine in, in, in any meat product. I mean, for the most part that you're eating, you eat a lot of chicken and beef, you're going to get a lot of creatine in your body. Like there's nothing. Um, oh, I don't want to take that. I don't want to get huge. Oh. <laughs> right. Oh, okay. Um, and if you have a basic understanding, again, of physiology, of exercise physiology more specifically, you would know that when somebody's advertising something like that, they're trying to dupe you. Then, I mean, whether they know it or not, the person selling it, genuinely, I think plenty of people, are, they believe in the products that they're selling. Um, but oftentimes something like that, it's being so over-exaggerated in terms of the effects that it's going to have. And you would know that if you understood physiology and you, and you understood the research that's been done on it for decades. Um, you would know that it may serve a small benefit to you, but you shouldn't expect anything serious from it. Um, and also that you're going to put on an enormous amount of water weight, most likely, which is where people have always gotten the impression that if someone is taking creatine, that it's like a steroid because someone, it's not uncommon for someone to put on 10 or 20 pounds of water weight mm -hmm. when they're taking a bunch of creatine. And then it looks like the person's gotten huge taking creatine, but it's like, as soon as you stop, stop taking the supplement, the water weight goes away and the water weight wasn't strength. I mean, it wasn't muscle. So you didn't really bend Like it's just, you know, it's, it's, you know, take a massive amount of sodium and it's going to bloat you too. It doesn't mean that you're going to increase your bench press by 300 pounds. Like it's, it's, um, all of those things are readily available. You know, the knowledge is there. It's available for, for people to, to learn. Um, and if you know these things, I just think performance and life in general is, is much easier um, and much less confusing, and you probably save a lot of money too. Yes, when you said the the lose water weight thing, the I immediately thought of my son. You know, years ago watching SpongeBob, yeah. and they just <laughs> it was just it popped into my head, and I had to mention it. So, getting the right information is the most important thing. Um, but you and I, I have no, had. I just want one one thing. Yes. The no. right information. I don't just the term right information mm. because what's right? So many things are we don't know what's right. You know, like there's a lot of controversy around things, and I don't ever. I try my absolute best to never think that I. You know, I, I almost always try to say I don't know if this is right. This is just what we think um, at the moment as might what might be right. Um, and having the ability to know that, well, there's a lot of possibilities for this particular pathway and for why this type of perform why performance training may do this or that or why it might not. Mm -hmm. Again, it's good to know that. And, and uh, it would, of course, benefit somebody in their training to be, to be aware. We can talk more about that later on. No, no problem. To, to be aware of the fact that, well... Oftentimes, the things we think are the right answer right now, they're not going to be the right answer in, in 10 years. And we might look back on it and think how ridiculous it was that we thought that that was the right answer. So, so, um, so speaking of that, this brings me into something that 
I brought up with you on numerous occasions in numerous conversations. So the question is how effective is academia in getting the most up-to-date information on the human body to the overall populace? And there are instances when we've taken, when I've taken courses and you've given lectures and you've said, okay, what I have to teach you, <coughs> excuse me, what I have to teach you right now is the generally accepted idea of how this works. There's a lot of debate and it could turn out that this isn't how it works at all. So <laughs> how applied is the why if we're calling ourselves and other departments as well applied physiology why isn't that information trickling out at a at a at a greater rate to the general population and also to the medical community who oh, is God, yeah that's, that's a good point um <coughs> i have a cough i'm so sorry i keep no, it's fine. Um, I just think that that's such a it's a hard question to answer because I mean, I mean, one of the things I think it takes so much time to learn this information, and there is such an investment in learn. So, so take remember we spoke in the beginning about metabolism and how labor right. intensive it is to learn it how complicated it is you spent uh, in some cases an entire semester learning it and getting it down pat you've invested yourself do you want to discard that when a new idea comes or a new understanding comes by is that maybe part of it i agree absolutely <laughs> so i mean part of it part of it uh because i mean i i remember when i really started to learn, for example, that there's a really strong possibility that the production of, of lactate, what was historically called anaerobic glycolysis, mm -hmm. which is more commonly called fast glycolysis now, um, that whole process may have very little, why it happens may have very little or nothing to do, almost nothing to do with oxygen. Um, you know, I, I, I don't even know how many years of my life I dedicated to learning you know, cellular metabolism uh, with relationship to to um, to anaerobic and aerobic glycolysis, as it was called. Mm -hmm. um, and I was very proud of myself after years of, of learning that material. And then when I started to, you know, really see a lot of the studies that were starting to really disprove it, you know, that's it's like a paradigm shift. And you realize, you know, you realize what oh my well the first thing that comes to mind is i've spent years teaching people something that a huge fundamental concept that might be wrong and you feel terrible about it first of all because it's like i can't believe i've done this should college uh, have no. should college have ceus <laughs> 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 Probably. I mean, and it's not like there's going to be a, necessarily a huge portion of the of the class that's going to care about that uh, because they're taking a million other classes mm -hmm. and, and whatnot. But there is a portion, especially at the graduate level, who, who do want to know it. And they, they you know, they're, they're going to use it and they may teach it themselves. And now you've propagated something that's wrong. 
Um, and it's going to be taught to other people because of you. And it's like, I think the instinct there is to say, oh, this paper is nonsense. It can't be right. You know, like oh, yeah. this has got, it's got to be wrong. Um, because, well, you don't want to, you know, like at least me internally, it's like, I didn't want to, one, I didn't want to force myself to have to learn something that I spent so much time, more time than anything else in physiology learning. I didn't want to have to relearn components of it because that just sounded agonizing. And two, I just didn't want it to be true because of the number of people that I, you know, had spent so much time teaching nonsense to, not nonsense, but outdated information to, mm -hmm. or at least not giving them the newest what's clearly partly true information that it wasn't provided to them. So and what's difficult too, is sometimes some of the detractors of this new information are not small names. They're big, big names that come and say, and like you said, they're invested in this. Um, yeah. They've written textbooks well, on this and are Absolutely. getting, yeah. What's clear is it's true. Like when I think of, when you think of like something like anaerobic glycolysis, mm -hmm. which, Again, the term probably doesn't even make sense anymore. Um, the It's just wrong that something like anaerobic or fast glycolysis only happens when there's insufficient amounts of oxygen inside of a muscle cell. It's just the evidence is so overwhelmingly true. Um, Why don't and, we split it? I mean, like we could, you could have a, a it split into and have it be cellular metabolism and then mitochondrial metabolism for the others. You know what I mean? Like sort of delineate it that way and then branch off. I've started to do that in my more advanced <coughs> classes um, to, because I, I, I just feel an obligation to because it's right. But here's the thing, and this gets me back to your original question, which is where I was actually going with this, but I tend to have very long-winded responses. That's okay. Don't worry. Um, I, um, that's really difficult, like internally one to do that, to accept that you are wrong. Everything that you've, much of what you've been learning has been largely wrong, at least seven or let's not say let's 20% of it maybe mm -hmm. is wrong, like it was wrong. And you've taught this information to hundreds of people. And it was, you know, it's, the way that you taught it was right based upon what you read in the textbooks and the, and the, and the research studies that were done. But the new evidence is, is quite clear that it's wrong. Um, that's hard to accept something like that, especially something so foundational to exercise physiology. So you spend a lot of time denying it and, and wanting to look at studies that would disprove it. And so you just keep, in many ways, just teaching what you were teaching, hoping that you know, what this other person is proposing is just inaccurate. Um, it anyways, are you saying academia is so much like TMZ? It's not even funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, what I was actually going to say is that's hard enough when most of the population still believes that muscle fibers produce lactic acid ah! and that is what causes that is what causes them to fatigue. That is information that started in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Um, and it still exists in most of the performance population to this day. It's, it's still in textbooks. We know that this level. is wrong. We've known that this is wrong since like the 1960s, seventies for sure. And, that information somehow 
still has not reached the general population. And that I don't have, I don't know that I have an explanation for how that's possible. Like, because I guess it gets, it gets passed down from one person to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. And most people don't take exercise physiology or physiology. You don't need to take exercise. General physiology would teach you this too. Um, as a course, I don't know what percentage of the American public actually takes human physiology. Probably not that many, I would guess. And how many of them are going to be invested enough to learn about lactate versus lactic acid production and fatigue? Even fewer. And you, you would need enough people with enough resources and enough marketing to mm -hmm. get that information out to the average person and break a cycle that's been being passed down for generations. And I don't know how you do it. Um, I think I, I have an idea. I think actually a quick way to do it would be to have someone. We have a lot of organizations. We have the, you know, NSCA, American College of Sports Medicine. Um, what else do we have? NASM um, and all of these fitness organizations. They could push it. The lac they could each make a video called the lactic acid myth or share it. You know what I mean? Someone could make a documentary. Ooh. You want Ooh. I just figured out that's a good idea. That's a really good idea and get it on Netflix and have people go, wait. And then that go on, go on. I was just gonna say I think it would be tremendously popular. Because those things are actually so popular with the general public. I think that if you were to say the term lactic acid, you know, in like a weight room or into a group of people that play sports, which is a huge percentage of the United States, um, basically everybody would have heard the term. Oh know, my gosh. At least something like it. And they probably would have heard that it accumulates in muscle and in the blood and makes the body fatigue. Um, and that that's a, that stuff getting in there causes fatigue and you got to get it out somehow, you know, like I would assume that that would be, you know, most people would actually be familiar with that. And if you had something like a documentary or something that actually covered that, I think it would be tremendously popular because right. it'd be engaging, it'd be fun. Um, I think we're going to do there's that. There's definitely very engaging ways to talk about it. And, and um, you're going to be in I it. Think... You're going to be in it. So <laughs> I mean, I would love doing something like that. It'd be so fun. You know, I, I'm not that creative in terms of uh, creating like videos. I mean, you could just, like you said, go to a gym and just ask, oh, yeah, that's what makes you. Oh, absolutely. That's why I feel fatigued. Um, and you could say, <laughs> well, what about um, hydrogen ions or, or um, you know, inorganic phosphate? What? Well, then yet again, I mean, this brings us back to our original part of the conversation, which was mm -hmm. you really need to understand basic physiology to know where ADP, inorganic phosphate, calcium, et cetera, where does it all come from and what's its relationship to why a muscle contracts? And you've got to understand those things before you can really appreciate what's what may cause muscle fibers to fatigue. So because if you don't, it's much easier to just hear lactic acid causes muscle fibers to fatigue and believe it. OK, whatever. I'm doing it. No. This is happening. This is happening. All right. Um, you want to make, yes. make a documentary? Sign me up. All right. Cool. Um, we it, It's on. This is going to happen. All right. Um, the last question I have for you. Um, 
what are or what is the biggest question in human physiology that you'd like to have answered? I think I've been talking about All it. All right, actually. there we I go. <laughs> I would love to know a couple things, and I don't think they're going to be answered in my lifetime, um, which is what actually causes muscle fibers to fatigue? What causes skeletal muscle fibers to fatigue? Nobody really knows. It's constantly changing. Um, what's clear is that lactic acid, which isn't actually produced by muscle fibers, mm -hmm. doesn't cause muscle fibers to fatigue. That we can be certain of. <laughs> what else causes muscle fibers to fatigue? Well, there's a lot of possibilities. Um, and there's probably many things that are involved in it. But no, I don't think anybody could tell you exactly what causes muscle fibers to fatigue. And I would also be curious, you know, to find out what's the true, what's the true pathway that's involved with the production of, 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 of lactate, you know, like where I would love to really have all the answers to metabolism, you know, the aerobic versus the anaerobic, probably more appropriately called the slow versus the fast system and, and, and what dictates when and why those different pathways are utilized to varying degrees. And there just aren't answers to that. And I think that those are the things that I would love to have answered. And I, I don't see it any time in the future, but that's also why I love physiology because I love not knowing the answers to things and learning new things. And I also think it's just, just more generally speaking, there's such a huge misconception um, among the general populace that we know a lot about the human body. That is probably the biggest misconception of anything. Well, you know, like, People think we know a lot about how the body works. And we know infinitely more about how the body works than we did 100 years mm -hmm. ago. But we know on the you know, bigger scale, we know almost nothing, you know, like circuits within the brain, different neurotransmitters in different locations of the, you know, the cerebrum, um, in muscle fatigue, how drugs work. Um, you know, the vast majority of, of, of prescription drugs, it, it's so much of it is just, you know, it's throwing poop at a wall and waiting until something <laughs> sticks. And then you're like, okay, that worked. Let's, let's, uh, let's stick with that. I think most people, if they were really familiar with that, it would just blow their mind uh, because there's this, 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 this pervasive myth that we know the answers to almost everything about the human body. And it couldn't be any further from the truth. We don't even know basic things. I mean, like how Tylenol really works. We don't know how the human body heals wounds. Like well, sure. I, I, I didn't, I, when, when we went, uh, we were going over that in, uh, I think basic physiology and it clearly said that the actual, uh, mechanism and how it works is unknown but what we do know there's is that portions certain... of it that are clear but there are portions of it that are a total mystery and that is true for basically every cellular process you know it's true we're constantly discovering new components to skeletal muscle fibers you know like you think that you learn the sliding filament model or theory mm -hmm. and you've learned everything about the way that a muscle fiber contracts it's it's you know like it's total nonsense like the whole process of excitation contraction coupling is infinitely complicated. Um, and there's so much of it that we still don't understand. Um, not even close to everything that could be understood. Um, 
and really, really basic things that a lot of people think we know the answers to, like, and we must know the answers to, like, again, like I said, like, like this drug Tylenol that everybody takes, uh, you know, acetaminophen, it, it, you know, reduces headaches, you know, that makes sense. It's got like, but like, if you actually learn about it, it's, there's plenty of components to, to it that we actually don't know how it does it. Wow. You know, where migraines even, you know, we don't even know what migraines really come from. Um, there's a huge difference between migraines and headaches. If you don't know really where migraines come from, we have certainly educated and good ideas and drugs to use to treat them. Um, but we don't really know where migraines come from. How are you going to create drugs to target something? You don't really know where it's coming from. You're just coming up with ideas and making drugs that target particular proteins and then seeing if it works and then being like, all right. <laughs> and then you find out 15 years later, that the drug wasn't actually doing at all what it was doing and, and like it actually works for something that's totally unrelated. I mean, this kind of oh, stuff happens and, all the time. And time. your liver needs to be removed. Yeah, no, it's... So, to, I mean, I, I just think that your, your question of what are the things I want answered, for me personally, I mean, yeah, I'm interested in things like fatigue and metabolism, but I think more broadly, so little about the human body has been answered. There's hundreds of things I'd love to know the answers to that there are not answers to. Um, so um, I think also people think like, what could people be doing research about anymore? Like we've figured everything out. Oh, yeah. I, I just no. think all that is so laughable, you know, like if you had any idea, like how little we actually know and how much research is needed um, to even make, you know, minor, you know, breakthroughs advancements yeah. um it's it's you know like somebody i think a couple of years ago somebody won the nobel prize for just figuring something basic out about uh you know uh i can't remember if it was a thermoreceptor or what it was like but it, this was you know like it's not that complicated um you would think yeah but it's something that we thought worked a particular way for a long period of time and then we figured out the way that the, you know, there's actually a specific receptor that senses, you know, this particular somato sensation. And, uh, you know, it, it should have been relatively basic, uh, but this is, uh, it wasn't basic at all. Jeez. So, I don't know. No, is that's that okay. That's okay. All right. Dr. Adolphs, this has been tremendous. Um, I got to have you on again because I have about 13 different episodes that I want to talk to you about, uh, different subjects I, I want to talk to you about. I would love to talk more specifically about specific things, you know, because so much of what you asked me, like each individual small component could have each been its own hour. No, absolutely. So, uh, absolutely. Um, Let's do it again soon. All right, cool. Um, thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate it. You are Thanks a rock star. Um, and that's pretty much it. All right, guys. Uh, that's the episode. And uh, we'll see you next time. Later. <laughs>